If we look at this uh, very familiar passage of Scripture that we call the Great Commission, I want to highlight some things this morning as we consider what it is to be a disciple maker that um, some of you probably have thought a lot about and that may be a totally new concept for others of you. One of the questions that always comes up when you look at these verses is to whom was Jesus addressing them. Now, it's obvious from the context that he was talking to those 11 disciples that he had called to follow him. But obviously, it also has a broader context because he mentions something in there like, I will be with you to the very ends of the age. And we know that those 11 guys didn't live past the first century. So they didn't make it till the ends of the age, and yet Jesus is talking to an audience that is bigger than they are. I think he's obviously talking to the whole church. He is talking to people throughout the ages, giving them the promise that he will never leave them, never forsake them, that he will be with them until the very end of the age. And if you look at that in, you know, in, in terms of biblical prophecy and history and whatever, uh, all the way until the time that Jesus comes back and, and wraps this whole thing up. And so Jesus is saying, I'm going to be with you the whole time. The other question that arises is, but, but specifically within the context of the church, to whom is he speaking? Is he talking to pastors and missionaries, the, the clergy, or is he speaking to the laity, or is he speaking to, to everybody? And one of the things that I think adds to the confusion of understanding that is our traditions. And the fact that in the midst of it, Jesus says, as you're making disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And everyone immediately thinks, who is permitted to officiate baptisms? Pastors. <laughs> I mean, that's the first thing that comes to your mind, right? And my second thing is, my question to you is, where do you find that in the Bible? It ain't there. There's nothing in the Bible that says pastors are the only ones who can baptize people. There's nothing in the Bible that says pastors are the only one who can serve communion. In fact, when you think about it, there's a lot of tradition that we have in the church. There's a lot of kind of knee-jerk, automatic thinking that was not at all in the first century church or in the early church. I think, frankly, it is a hangover from the late Roman Empire and the, and the Middle Ages and Roman Catholicism. Because the separation came between the clergy and the laity that simply cannot be found anywhere in the Bible. In fact, you won't even find the words clergy and laity in the Bible. There's not a distinction. We're called to be the family of God. And indeed, it's true that God does call some out, and some of them He gives pastoral teaching roles to, but there's nothing in Scripture that associates disciple-making or baptism or communion or any of those other, I don't even like to call them sacraments because that, I don't think that's a good word either. But, you know, we tend to think that way. There's nothing that associates those 
functions, those testimonies, with the pastoral office. We've invented all of that stuff. We've added it to the Scripture. And in the process of doing so, we've created a gap that, that kind of makes us feel that the paid professionals on staff are the ones who do the official ministry, and everybody else is just kind of, well, second class in the kingdom. It was very interesting to me in Jason's testimony up here that he admitted to confusing making disciples with making pastors. And somehow he felt that he had failed with the young man who didn't want to be a pastor or a church planter. He just wanted to go into the middle of the city and live among the poor and serve them in the name of Jesus. And I was like, well, don't you want to start a church? I mean, he felt like he had failed somehow himself because this guy didn't turn out to be a clergy. <laughs> when in fact, he was doing exactly what God had called him to do. So, I asked the question again, to whom are these verses addressed? And when you look at verse 19, in the last 15 or 20 years or so, in Bible translation, there has come an interesting debate about how to translate it. Because we read the first word as if it were the imperative. Go. Go into all the world and make disciples. And we think, well, that's the imperative. We're supposed to go. I don't think that's what the verse says. The verse actually says, and if you study the grammar of it, and I did just again this week, just to make sure that I was on target, and you know, sometimes I slip a neuron or something, and, and I just wanted to freshly get into the language and see if I'm telling you the truth, and I'm confident that I am. The first word in this is not an imperative at all. It actually functions as a participle, and without boring you with all the details of the grammar, the simplest way to translate it is, while you're going. While you're going. In other words, Jesus makes the assumption that they're going to be going. We're all going. You know, we're going to the store, we're going to the post office, we're going to work, we're going to college, we're going to retire, we're going... All the time, we're going somewhere doing something. And Jesus was simply saying, while you're going, while you're living your life, while you're doing the things that you are supposed to be doing, make disciples. There's the imperative. There's the command. Make disciples. It's something that is supposed to happen while we're doing the other things that make up our lives. Why is that a big deal? Because if you think the command is to go make disciples, you tend to segregate that in your calendar and apportion it to a certain time. I served a church in Nashville, Tennessee before coming here. We had a big visitation program on Tuesday nights. It was such a big visitation program that we served dinner. And we had about 150 to 200 people going out on Tuesday night to visit all over the community. And they would come in order to go. And they would put it on their calendar, Tuesday night, 7 to 9, is church visitation. They'd show up and get dinner, 7 o'clock, they'd be in their cars going two or three at a time, and they would go visit all over the community. 
And it's easy, if you think the command is go, to simply relegate that to, okay, this is what I do Tuesday night from 7 to 9. Or somebody goes to be a missionary, so they're going to go to another country. Or I'm going to go make disciples uh, during family vacation Bible school. We tend to categorize it and see it as a project. What Jesus is actually saying in these verses is it's not a project, it's a way of living. It doesn't belong on your calendar, it runs through your calendar. It's like breathing. You know, you don't put in your calendar, okay, 9.50, breathe for 10 minutes. And then go back to work. Because you breathe all the time. Breathing is what you do to keep functioning. And you do it quite subconsciously. Jesus is saying to, to his followers, your mission as you go about your life is to be about the purpose of calling people to me. And as I studied these two verses freshly uh, this week and, and considered them again in some depth this morning as I was meditating in my office, some of the language is very beautiful. After he says, you know, as you're making disciples, some of them, indeed, some of the people that you encounter are going to come to faith in Christ. And when they do, they need to be baptized. They need to be baptized as a public testimony that pictures for the world, I have died to the world in my old sinful way of living. I have been buried with Christ in His death. And I have been raised with Him to walk in newness of life. And I want the whole world to know that this is my testimony. It's not the water that does anything for you. It's the testimony through the outward symbol of what God has done in your heart, in your identity with Christ. So Jesus said, let this be the, the demarcation, the starting point of a new life in Christ. Those who turn to follow Him, and you say, well, how soon should that happen? Well, for the Ethiopian eunuch, it was like right after he heard. You know, Steve, uh, Stephen, is it Stephen? Am I right? No, I'm not right. Philip, thank you. But I had a neuron slip there. Philip, Philip is sharing the Gospel with him and explaining the Scriptures and and he talks about being baptized and following Christ. And, and the Ethiopian says, oh, here's the water. I see water right over there. What's to stop us right now? And Philip, who was not a pastor, by the way, uh, gets out of the chariot with him. And they go, and he's baptized on the spot. That's a public testimony. But after we get past that, Jesus says, teach them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. But really, again, We've got an ongoing process here, teaching them to, and the word observe literally means to guard or to cherish. You know, our, our translation potentially makes it sound so works-oriented, but it really isn't. Jesus is saying, as you're rubbing shoulders with people on a day-to-day -day basis, and, and, and some of them are becoming followers of me, teach them to cherish all the things that I've said to you. Teach them to guard it, to hold it precious. Uh, you know, when you think about the things that Jesus said as He explains the Scripture and puts it all into meaningful perspective, He's saying to them, let your life rub off as they learn to guard and cherish what you guard and cherish, 
my teachings, my words. And he says, and look. That's, you know, it says low in your Bible. But it means, look, look, I myself am going to be with you every day until the very end of the age. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. Friends, the process of making disciples is not a commandment restricted to the clergy because they really don't exist. It's instructions that Jesus gave to all of his followers that in the normal course of their daily living, be mindful of the fact that all the people around you need to know me. Be about the process of sharing your life, making disciples, baptizing them. And you know what? I'll, I'll stand with you in this. I better talk to the elders, make sure they'll stand with me. But if you lead someone to Christ, you can baptize them if you want to. You can participate in that symbol with them. Because this is something that we should all be a part of. Leading people to faith, baptizing in the name of Jesus, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and sharing our lives with them that they can come to know Jesus Christ. I want you to divorce from your thinking that this is a pastoral or missionary function. This is a community lifestyle for all of us. So... In the video, there was an extra called the Royal Order of the Red Suspenders. And I want you to watch this because it's really cool. The Royal Order of the Red Suspenders. Jokes about suspenders and different things like that, and a way of 
trying to come up with a name and also a way of identifying us. We're talking about, well, let's call it the Order of the Princess because there's every time left. We say we change to the Royal Order because we're working for a, for a great God. When you've been with the team three cuttings, you earn your suspenders. Once the word got out that we were doing this, I just couldn't believe all the different opportunities we couldn't keep up with the supply. Well, you, you were the cook team with the wood. <laughs> when I wanted to come out here and work with the wood, I don't know if this guy that is straight free come out here, take your mind off the world, split the wood, knowing that that wood is going to go to somebody's house to warm them up. Which one? Between these two. I'm going to go to the one. The two of you guys. We say that those people that are absolutely down to their last, literally answer, I've literally talked to people on the phone at work. Talking to them on the phone, they're saying, I am putting my last stick of firewood in the fireplace. And it's winter time. Oh, so you can use it right away. Yeah, when this is gone, the house looks cold. Just because they're having a hard time or, or going through a hard time in life doesn't make them less of a person. We want to know that you know, sometimes things like this happen, and God knows why, and we don't. And, and it's not our job to try to second guess it, but it is our job to do what we were told, and that's come along the second and the way in and the homes and I wouldn't want to have missed this opportunity. It's just, it's one way for myself, it's some way that I can give back most of my life. I was on the seat in the church. And it's nice to be able to give back. Um, it's a way that I can serve God where I don't always have or haven't always had money. It's something that I can do to give back. I just love chainsaws and, and the smell of gas and oil. By and large, we are simple with a simple task. We are to represent Christ in what we do, in integrity and in daily life. To live our lives out loud for Christ means we can't stand on our We have to get out of You know, it's interesting the different ways that God leads different uh, congregations and fellowships. Um, they cut wood. And you may not realize there are a lot of parts of the country that wood-burning stoves or fireplaces are the only way they have of heating their homes. In fact, the house that we lived in in Tennessee before we moved here uh, had a wood-burning stove, a Franklin stove in the middle, and that was the only heat in the house. And so we had to have a wood pile, stockpiled uh, for the winter, and uh, stoke that stove every day in order to keep the house warm. So that's a huge impact there. Here, we have Backpack Bash, or we have Family Vacation Bible School, or we have Awana Ministry for Children, or whatever it happens to be practical ways 
of loving people. I was thinking back, a memory came to me of a number of years ago. You remember the Washington, D.C. sniper that these two guys were shooting out of the trunk of a car and killing people as they pumped gas or went to the convenience store? That had been going on a little bit, and of course fear and terror had struck the whole area there in Washington and Virginia and whatever around the Beltway. And We soon got reports that some of uh, the members of Alliance congregations were going to stand at the gas pumps to fill the tanks of people who would come, and they would process their card for them and fill up their tanks so they didn't have to get out of their car because people were terrified uh, that they would get shot. And here were followers of Jesus Christ saying, I know that I have eternal life. I know where I'm going if I die. And I'm willing to stand between you and the bullet and give you some peace of mind. You can be sure they had many, many opportunities to share the message of Jesus Christ with people who wondered, what in the world are you doing this for? Because we love you and because we love God. You know, another thing, though, that's very important, and I cannot overemphasize this. You can't do things like this as a project. People who feel that they're the focus of a project, they they pick that up. They can smell that coming a mile away. If you just want to make a convert and get a church member, uh, people detect that underlying motivation and they realize that they're not being treated as a person but as an object. And friends, God doesn't have objects on the planet. He has people that he loves. And loving people is not a means to an end. It is the end in and of itself. The scripture says we love because God loved us. And it's the fact that God's life and God's love is in our heart that motivates us to love other people. The love has to be genuine. It has to be heartfelt. It has to be truly compassionate that goes out because people are just people. All over the planet, people are people. They have dreams and hopes. They fall in love. They get their heart broken. They have families. They have nightmares. They have fears. They have needs. Just like you and just like me, people all over the world are the same. It doesn't matter how rich or poor. And and in uh, the Great Commission, it says, reach people of every nation. It literally means ethnos. Do not allow ethnicity to get in the way of the loving. It doesn't matter if they're the same race or the same language or the same culture or the same country of origin, Jesus said, go to every ethnic group. Make them a part of that encompassing love of God. Don't make any distinction. We should model, we should model uh, the absence of, of prejudice and the presence of all-encompassing accepting love.
know, it has to be a part of who we are. Because otherwise, people know that they're being used, even if it's for religious purposes. They pick that up. We have to make sure our motives are pure and that God is the one who is living through us and loving people. It's an unconditional love. You know, it used to disturb me when I was in college and doing uh, Christian service ministries uh, many times that some of the... um, some of the soup kitchens or whatever would uh, require someone to hear a gospel presentation or hear a sermon before they could get a meal. That always bothered me a little bit. I understood that we were there to share Jesus Christ, but you know what? They were hungry. <laughs> they needed to eat. And uh, if, you, if they ate uh, and then they were open, we could share Christ. But it always bothered me to do it the other way around. We don't have any strings attached to this kind of love, it's got to be free and unconditional. The Scripture says God sends His rain upon the just and the unjust and the Son. And He blesses people, whether or not they love Him or even know Him. He still provides for them. And so our love that reaches out has got to be an unconditional love that is genuine from the heart because God loves people, God loved me, God made a difference in my life, and now I have the opportunity to pass that on. And and Jesus said, this is how people will know that you're my followers, that you love each other. Love is the thing that gives it away because it's not the way the world loves. It's a love with no strings. It's a love that is genuine. It's a love that treats everyone with equal dignity and shares the love and the compassion of Jesus Christ. In the process of doing that, God will give us the opportunity to speak to those whose hearts are open and and with whom the Holy Spirit is working. And we simply need to be ready to to do what God directs in the moment that He gives us that kind of direction. Well, I thought about sharing with you the the uh, story of Moses' um, rod, his staff, um, toward the end myself. But as I listened to Doctor Soper uh, explaining this, I thought he does such an excellent job here. I'm just going to let him wrap up the message this morning with his explanation of Moses' staff. And uh, he poses a great question at the end. Listen carefully for about six more minutes as John Soper uh, tells us the story of Moses. It's the teaching one, David. Thank you. Jason Ostrander is a passionate man, and he's totally committed to taking the good news of Jesus to every man, woman, and child on the face of this planet. He's giving his life to mobilizing the next generation of believers to get the job done. Now, if you're anything like most followers of Jesus Christ, you would also like to make that kind of difference for the kingdom. But how could that happen? What do you have that you could give or do for Christ? One of my favorite stories in the Bible involves an 80-year-old shepherd standing in front of a bush in the desert of Midian. 
The bush is on fire, but the flames don't consume it. The man is Moses, and he's having a conversation with God. Moses, what do you think about when you hear that name? If you grew up in Sunday school, you probably think about a baby floating in a basket through the bulrush or something. And the princess who discovered him and raised him in the palace of the Pharaoh as a prince of Egypt. Or perhaps the picture that comes to mind is that of Moses, the mighty man of God, standing on the side of Mount Sinai, his face glowing with the radiance of the presence of God. In his hands are the stone tablets inscribed by the very finger of God. If you watch a lot of old movies, that Moses looks a lot like Charles Heston. But the man standing in front of the burning bush is neither a prince nor a mighty man of God. He's just an ordinary shepherd, no longer a prince, and not yet the mighty man of God. And he believes that there is nothing he can do for God. I'm convinced that most Christians live their entire lives under the cloud of a terrible delusion. They have somehow become convinced that God only uses important people, like converted Egyptian princes or miracle-working apostles who do not know the meaning of fear and who are well beyond the pull of the temptations that daily threaten to distract us from the path of faith. When they read the Bible and encounter people like Moses or Peter or Mary, they focus on the finished product, not on the person that they were when God began to use them. And as a result, they have erroneously concluded that God has no special plan for their lives and believe that they have nothing they can offer Him. But nothing could be further from the truth. The roll call of faith reads like a litany of ordinariness. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that God prefers to use ordinary people, even weak and lowly and despised people. He uses old people like Moses and young people, very young ones, like the boy Samuel. Weak people like David triumph over strong ones like Goliath. And socially unimportant people like shepherds become invited guests to the birth of Messiah who was born in the stable. We made an account as an established fact. God uses very ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary work. But how can God use you and me? I believe there's an important clue in the Moses story. In the middle of the conversation that he had with God, which is recorded in Exodus chapters 3 and 4, Moses asks God what to do if the Egyptians and the Israelites do not believe him. God, in response, asks a question of his own. What's in your hand? Then he directs Moses to throw his staff upon the ground and it turns into a snake. This becomes the sign that he is to give to establish his credentials as God's messenger. The very end of the account, we're told that having consulted with Jethro, his father-in-law, Moses took his family back to Egypt. And then it says, and he took the staff of God with him. It was just a branch from a dead almond tree. But there was a moment in time when the staff that belonged to Moses became the staff that belonged to God. And what a difference it made. From that point onward, we're repeatedly told by Scripture that at the command of God, Moses stretched out his staff. A snake appeared and devoured the snakes conjured up by Pharaoh's magicians. The Nile River turned to blood. Plague after plague fell upon the nation of Egypt. The Red Sea was parted, and water flowed from a rock. In the end, that staff was placed inside the Ark of the Covenant as one of the holiest objects in the nation of Israel. 
There was another point in time when the slingshot that belonged to a young Israelite named David became God's slingshot. At a time when the nearly empty cruise of oil belonging to a widow in the town of Zarephath became God's cruise of oil. Gideon gave God his torch, and a little boy gave Jesus his lunch. And in every one of these cases, the person God used was a very ordinary person with no thought whatever that they could make any significant difference in their world for God. But in every one of these cases, God took the thing that was in their hand, and he blessed it, and he used it in an extraordinary way. I have a very important question to ask. What is in your hand? God wants to use it. The bottom line for us is this. God is going to use very ordinary people, people like you and me, to accomplish the task of completing the Great Commission. So I ask again, what is in your hand? It is probably not a shepherd's staff, but it might be a mechanic's wrench. It, it may not be the skill set of a gifted surgeon, but it might be that of a well-trained teacher, or a passionate cook, or a careful accountant. Please take some time this week to meditate on the story of Moses. Then ask God to show you what you have in your hand. Give it to him. And ask him to use you. Because together, we can change the world. We can finish the task. Let's pray together. Father, the passion in John's eyes in this video just touched my heart. He's not just making a clever uh, piece about a core value. He believes with all of his heart what he's saying. And knowing him as I do, and knowing that he has suffered with rheumatoid arthritis and many, many bouts of gout, his feet are beat up and bruised from the episodes, and often on crutches, and usually in pain. Yet, he is on fire with a love for you and a love for people and willing to be used in whatever way you desire to use him. And pray, Father, that we would have that same commitment, that same openness, that whatever it is you've given us, whatever our talents, whatever our, our staff that we have in our hand, that we would make it available to you. Change the way we think, Lord. Decompartmentalize our lives. Make us to see that being a disciple and a disciple maker is 24-7. It's who we are. It's the way we live. And Father, delight us with the privilege of being ambassadors of Jesus Christ, of being available to you to speak, and the thrill of being a part of seeing lives transformed before our very eyes because we have been willing 
to be an instrument in your hands. Lord, I pray that you would lead us to that place where we hold nothing back. Bring glory and honor to the name of Jesus Christ as we yield to you all the things that you've given us. I ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.